know what to say, but wow, wow, wow. I know it's been two weeks since I've put out a podcast. Everyone who knows me knows that I have been knee-deep in GameStop stock. Before we get into it, I want to thank you for listening to the Life in Paradise podcast. My name is Brandon Harper, and I don't do pre-recorded intros. I'm just a regular dude with a regular job with lots of opinions. So I come here every week or two to get them out. I'm of the mindset that if everyone shares their opinions, then people won't be as judgmental. Because I feel like most judgments come from misalignment of expectations. Enough about that. Today's show is going to be 100% about the GameStop stock situation. Later on today, I'm probably going to do another recording, and it will be the typical banter about random things, mostly of which annoy me and are funny. But for now, sit back, relax, and hand me the keys to your brain for about the next 30 or 45 minutes. It's time to learn about GameStop stock situation. I don't even know where to begin. It's been a crazy week. And I'm going to go into all the details. I'm going to break down this whole GameStop thing on a very, very simplistic level. So you might want to tune out if you kind of understand what's happening and then, you know, listen back in for the details. But I've kind of been struggling on trying to figure out exactly how to come up with a good analogy that that people can understand. So... I think I've got one. Just bear with me here. Think about back in the day when everyone was trading baseball cards. We had a baseball card book that was published every month that showed us the value of every card. People collected cards. They held on to some. They thought some were going to go up. They thought some were going to go down. And so they bought and sold and traded them. It became like its own little economy in a way. So... So think about that. Now I want you to think about baseball card shows. And if you're not familiar with those or if you remember what happened was, basically, once a month or so in, in big towns, um, everyone would convene to one like a convention center or some type of hall, and they would swap cards and they would buy cards and they would sell cards. Okay, so we're going to kind of follow that concept just to, just to break everything down. Envision that whole situation, but for simplicity purposes, we're going to pretend that everyone, there's only one card out there. There's only one baseball card because it'll kind of confuse things if we, if we go too far. So think about there's one baseball card floating around. Some people have it. Some people want it. The number of people who have it and people who want it is not always the same. So it changes every month depending on how they think this player is going to do where he might get traded to, whether or not he's going to recover from an injury. All those things affect the value of this one baseball card. And we're going to call this baseball card the Mickey Mantle card. 
So everyone knows who that is. Everyone would have loved to have had his baseball card at some point. And then there's going to be the buyers and the sellers. And there's also going to be another person that's going to come into play, but I'll get, I'll, I'll get to it. So once a month, people convene at the baseball card shows. You have the guys who hold the Mickey Mantle card, and you have the guys who want to buy the Mickey Mantle card. When the doors open up to the show, the guys are already in there that have the card. And they're, they're all standing in a line, 15, 20 guys. Oh, I'm going to remind you that now it's kind of hypothetical. So everything up to this point is all true, and then now we're going to go into hypothetical mode kind of for simplicity. So the, the baseball card show, the day shows up, they open the doors, everyone who wants to buy a card rushes in there. The guys who have the cards for sale, they're already standing in there. And so as you rush in, you think about, you're, you're wanting to run in, you're going to buy this card because you think Mickey Mantle is going to be a better baseball player and so you you run up to a guy and you're like how much do you want he's like five bucks and you go to the next guy and you're like how much do you want he's like i'll take 450 so boom you buy the card for 450 you go home now your card you've got 450 for your card you kind of watching mickey mantle play you're gonna see how he's doing hey he hit a couple home runs he's doing really well now when the baseball card show comes to town you get to go in early because you're a seller and you've got the card. You got one of the cards. There's there's a certain number of cards floating around. It's it's limited, it's finite. So you are now hold the card. You're sitting in there, the doors open, people come rushing in. They come up to you as fast as they can. How much do you want for your card? How much do you want for your card? And you're like, I want 550. Boom. Someone takes it. You sell the card for 550. Now remember you paid what four dollars for it or whatever. I can't even remember what I said, but the difference that you paid and the difference you sold it for that's your profit now you have no more mickey mantle card but you have the profit in your hands fast forward to the next month you're like you know what that worked out pretty well i think i'm gonna buy another one maybe even two so you rush in as a buyer and this time there's far more buyers than sellers there's more people that want that card than people who have that card so now when you run up to the people and you're saying, how much do you want to sell your card for? They can say a higher price because they can see that there's more people who want the card than people who have the card. So you go ahead and you buy two cards for $7 each. Total investment of $14. Now you run back home and you wait till next month. Next month, baseball card show comes to town. You're in early with your two cards at $7 a piece. People come rushing in. Uh, the, the number of buyers and sellers isn't quite as off as it was, so there's more sellers this time. And then, so now the price falls out somewhere around 5 bucks. So you're like, man, I can either sell my cards now and take a loss, take my $4 loss because they went from 7 to 5 or I can hang on to them in hopes that they'll go up. So I think, you know what? I'm going to go ahead and just sell them. I think the price is going to keep going down. I'm going to sell my cards and take the loss and go home. So that's what I do. I sell both cards. Now I've got $10. I lost four. I go home. I continue to watch Mickey Mantle. He's getting worse. He's getting worse. He gets an injury. So I'm thinking, you know what? That card's going to keep going down. So then what I do, here's where it gets tricky. So this is where it's called the short. You've heard the term short, short squeeze, all that stuff. You have no clue what it means, probably. 
So then what I do is I go to Bobby, my next door neighbor, and, and he's got like four of these Mickey Mantle cards. And he doesn't really go to the shows. He's just hanging on to them. And so I go to him. I said, Bobby, let me borrow one of your cards. And he's like, for what? I'm like, oh, I just, I want to have it. I think I can, I think I can make some money off of it. And he says, okay, you can borrow my card, but you got to bring it back to me in six months. And I say, okay, that's fine. He says, not only that, but I'm going to charge you 10% of the value of this card just for you to borrow it. And I say, you know what? That's fine. I'm willing to pay you 10% of the value of the card. So then he says, you know what? I need some collateral. You can take this card, but I need to hold on to some money because I'm not really sure what you're going to do with this card. And if something happens to it, I want to be compensated for the value of it. So I say, okay, here's the money. Remember the last time we traded cards, there were five. So I give him five bucks. I said, look, you just hang on to this. Whenever I bring the card back, you give me my $5 back. Yep, done deal. The 10% Bobby gets to keep, but the $5 is just collateral on the card. And right as you're walking out the door, Bobby says, oh yeah, one more thing. If you hang on to my card and the price starts to go up, you're going to need to come back and add collateral to that $5 because if something happens to my card, I'm going to need to replace it. In order to replace it, I'm going to have to go to the baseball card show and buy it. So if the price of that card goes up, you have to bring me the money for the difference. I say, yeah, okay, no worries, tranquilo, we good, we good, I got it. Okay, so the baseball card show now comes back to town. I run in there, I've got my card, I paid five bucks for it. Actually, I didn't. I gave him collateral, the $5 collateral, and I'm going to sell this card. I'm going to sell it for what I think I can get for it, but that's going to all depend on who's in there and who wants to buy it. So I run in there, and I get $7 for my card. And I think to myself, awesome. What I'm going to do now, I, I sold Bobby's card for 7 bucks. I've now got the $7. Now I think, you know what? I think the price of this card is going to go down. He hasn't been playing that well, and it's going to go down. In the meanwhile, Bobby says, hey, bud, that card's now worth $7. I have your five. You need to go ahead and bring me another two. I say, okay, no problem. I go and I take Bobby another two bucks to cover it. Remember, it was worth five when I borrowed it from Bobby. It's worth seven at the card show. And so in case I lose it or something happens to it, I got to give Bobby the money so he can replace it. It's his card to begin with. So I run over to Bobby's house and I give him two bucks. Then let's just say that all of a sudden Mickey Mantle starts playing ridiculously well. And the next baseball card show comes around. And the price is now worth $10. And Bobby's like, hey, uh, you got my card back? And I'm like, no, man, I don't have it yet, but I'm going to get it. And Bobby goes, well, we know the card's now worth $10, so you need to bring me another three. So I go, okay. So I run over to Bobby's house. I give him another three bucks. Now Bobby has $10 of mine. The card is still out there. Who knows who bought it? It doesn't matter. Fast forward to the next baseball card show. All of a sudden, Mickey Mantle is doing phenomenally well, and his price is going up. So what happens now? It's now $14. So I get a call from Bobby. Bobby's like, bro, you better bring me another four. I run over to Bobby's house. I give him another $4. Now the card's trading at $14. So now 
the next show comes to town, and I'm getting kind of nervous because this thing can just keep going up. You see, there's no end. If you buy something and the price goes to zero, the most I can lose is the money that I paid for the baseball card. In this situation, the more the price goes up, the more I'm faced with the decision of whether or not just to buy the card back for $14 and take my loss and go give the card back to Bobby or just keep riding out. Hopefully, the card will fall and I can even break even, cut my losses, or maybe even make some money. So that's the decision that I'm faced with. In the meanwhile, Bobby's starting to say, hey, bud, we kind of agreed that you would borrow this card for a month or two. Here we are in like month three or four. I need some more interest. Okay, got to go back to Bobby's house and pay him some interest. Next baseball card show comes around. We all run in there. There's like, let's just say there's 30 people. We're all, we're all looking, to, looking to buy, but there's only like five sellers in there. What happens now? Baseball card goes up even more. Like, shoot, this thing's spiraling out of control. I don't know what to do. Do I just eat it? Do I buy the card or do I wait? Now, in the meantime, there's lots of other people out there that are in the same position as me. And if we all just decide to start buying the baseball card, we're going we're gonna to push the price up. Because the more people that want to buy, the more the price goes up. Now, one option would be to go over to Billy's house. He also holds a lot of these Mickey Mouse cards. And say, hey, yo, Billy, I need to borrow a card. Okay, what for? I think the price is going to go down. I'm going to sell it and buy it back. So now, Billy does the same thing with Bobby. But remember, I can just take the, the baseball card that Billy loaned me, go give it back to Bobby. Now Bobby's covered, but I'm locked into Billy for the new price of the card, which is 14 or even, maybe even higher. Who knows? So I'm just rolling that, that loss from one to another at twice the price, Okay. In the meantime, all of these Mickey Mantle fans, they've all bought Mickey Mantle cards, and they're holding on to them. They don't care about the value. They're just, they love Mickey Mantle. They don't want to see Mickey Mantle go anywhere. They love the fact that his card's valued high. And they kind of want to screw over me, the guys like me, who go borrow cards and sell them into a market and hope they go down so I can make money. Sounds kind of like a greedy thing to do, right? So... That's kind of where we are right now, is that, the, well, let me back up a little bit. The, the scenario that I played out is called a short sell. That's how it works. You borrow something, you sell it. When the market goes down, you buy it back for a cheaper price, return it to its owner, and you get to keep the difference. So had things worked in my favor, it would have worked fine. But since the price started going up on me, and it started going out of control. And I knew that if I would have started buying cards back to cover my loss, then everyone else would too. And it would just send the price up even more and more and more. It's like a, it's like a downward spiral. As it, as it starts to go, it just goes out of control. And so if you haven't put all the pieces together yet, the Mickey Mantle card is the GameStop stock. Obviously, the baseball card show is the stock market. Bobby... The lender of the stock is one of these hedge fund guys. Billy is also a hedge fund guy. Um, actually, and, and the position that I would be in would also be a hedge fund trader. So that's, that's where we're at. 
And um, now I'm kind of getting. I want to. I'm going to go back in time a little bit, and I'm going to. Ref- I'm going to reference back probably uh, the baseball card example as I go through uh, what's actually happened in the in the key players in this whole thing. So if we rewind time to about 2019, there was a financial advisor, uh, Michael Gill. Uh, he goes by the name Roaring Kitty on YouTube, and he's just a stock trader. He's a he's a day trader. Uh, I think he works for himself, risks his own money, and and plays the stock market. You know, tries to catch companies and when they're moving up or down, and and making money on the movement. So he saw that GameStop was undervalued. He said, man, you know what? That company is worth more than what than what everyone's thinking. And not only that, but there's these hedge fund guys that have so much control, they have so much power in the marketplace that they will put their position out there and they will say, hey, we have shorted this stock. The company's not performing. They're a brick and mortar company. They're going out of business. We think the stock's going to go down. We don't like the stock. But meanwhile, remember, there's one guy out there who has faith in this company. He sees what they've done. He knows what they're doing. He kind of sees them pivoting their direction, catering more towards the digital marketplace. So this guy goes out and cashes in his 401k. I think it was worth like $50,000. And he buys options and he buys stocks. I'm not going to go into how options work. It's just a little too tricky. But it's kind of like stocks, except you're, you're buying the right to buy the stock in the future at a fixed price. So either way, he goes out and he buys stock and options and all this uh, in, in GameStop, knowing that it's undervalued and that all these guys have gone short on it. And he knows over time, he thinks that people will start seeing the value in GameStop and they'll start buying the stocks and it will cause the price to go up. And it'll put these guys in the short position in a bind just like when I had the baseball card and everyone wanted it and the price started going up and up and up, then I'm faced with this huge decision of whether or not to take my losses or try to ride it out and pay Bobby interest in the meantime. So he saw that this firm was in that spot where they were going to be pushed. Or actually, it's, this is the term squeeze. Like they're, they're thinking about when you squeeze and somebody like, you better make a decision. I'm squeezing in on you. The walls are coming in. You got to figure something out. That's kind of why it's referred to as a squeeze. And so this guy, this financial advisor guy, uh, he's on a Reddit subforum, which is called Wall Street Bets. And I know you've probably heard all these terms being thrown around. I'm breaking it down as simply as I can in case people don't really know how it all fits together. So he, he was on this, this forum called Wall Street Bets. And, and this is a group of 2 million 18 to 24-year-old kids, primarily, who apparently like to gamble. They gamble on Wall Street, on the stock market. So they'll just take a big chunk of money. Now, these people who are in this forum, they're not idiots. They're the code writing, software, computer, gaming guys that that play games 15 hours a day. And they have a trash can full of Mountain Dew cans and Red Bull. Um, and, and they just... Computers are their thing. They understand data. They understand numbers. They understand all that. They're not dummies. And they look for stocks that are undervalued, and they throw a ton of money at them. And they, these guys, it's really gambling. They don't care if they lose. They don't care if they win. They're just there to have fun. And and these guys, they're not like, they're not all that materialistic. They don't, they don't need to 
go out and buy the most expensive jewelry and expensive clothes. None of that really means anything to them. They just like to play their games, write their code, earn their money, and make their bets. And so all these kids in this forum kind of saw that what this guy was doing was positioning himself to, to squeeze the shorts on this stock. And the guy, um, he goes by the, the, the name um, Deep Fucking Value. And so they saw that this guy was positioning himself, and all along the way, he was, he was making videos explaining to the public what he was doing and why he thought that, um, that GameStop was undervalued. Never once did he encourage anyone to go do anything. He, he only posted screenshots of his movements, so like what he did for the day after the trading closed. So he, he did this very, very specifically to make sure he wouldn't get in trouble because it's illegal to give people trading advice if you're not a certified broker, blah, blah, blah. You know, you, the government thinks that you have to have a certification in order to give financial investment advice, and they're very serious about it. So this guy, Deep Fucking Value, was posting all of his videos every day. Here's what I think is going to happen. And it's not saying, like, here's what you should do. It's just saying, here's my prediction. Do with it whatever you want to. Well, all these kids, these gamer kids, they've got kind of like an emotional tie to this company. They grew up going there. They bought their games there. They got unhappy with them sometimes because the, they wouldn't buy the games back for a reasonable price. But for the most part, there's a, there's a nostalgic tie to this company. And so all these kids started buying in. Buying in, buying in. And slowly the stock price started coming up and up and up and up because more people were buying and more people were buying and people were seeing that people were buying. And so in the marketplace, there's a mentality that like, well, if it's going up and people are buying it, then they must know something I do. So I, I'm going to buy it too. And so that, that synergy kind of started with this. And at first, no one really took these guys seriously. They thought... There's no possible way that these 18 to 24-year-old kids are going to be able to have any impact whatsoever on the stock price or Wall Street. Well, we all know now they were wrong. So now we're going to rewind time to Thursday of last week. I get a text from my cousin Harry who's like, hey man, check out GameStop. And I just seen on my phone that it had moved up like 15%. And for a stock to go up 15% a day, that's a crazy high movement. So he writes me, uh, this stock is in a short squeeze that's going to go through the roof. I'm like, huh, okay. So Thursday of last week, I bought some. By the end of the day, I like doubled my money. So Friday morning, I bought some more. It keeps going up and going up, and I'm buying more, and it's going up, and I'm buying more. And by this time, I think, okay, this is some crazy bubble. And that's when I started doing a deep dive into it and learned as much as I possibly could. So between Friday, uh, not this last Friday, but the one before, and this most recent Friday, seven days, I have done almost absolutely nothing but get involved with this. All day trading, all night reading. I mean, it, it was like a stockbroker's office at the brewery. I mean, I literally did probably three hours of, of beer work this week, I probably averaged three and a half, four hours of sleep per night. Uh, Friday night, when I was leaving the brewery at like 4.30 in the afternoon, I was exhausted. I couldn't even hold my head up. 
And um, <laughs> Josh was like, hey, man, you want to go smoke a cigar tonight? I go, no. He goes, what are you going to do? I said, sleep. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know. To me, this is one of the most fascinating and interesting things I've ever seen. I mean, I know I'm kind of a nerd when it comes to this stuff, but the fact that even if you take out all the complicated trading side of it, the fact that these kids, they didn't really collaborate. They never once said, like, we should all do this at the same time. But through their comments, you could kind of see that, like, you know what? Let's all just buy this stock, hold on to it, and it will force the price up faster than if people just bought it because they thought the company was going to do well. And they thought, you know what? This is this is what these hedge fund guys. So the guys who, who went short on the stock, the guys who, who did the same move in the stock market that I did in the baseball card market, they're kind of known amongst Wall Street and the people of Wall Street as being kind of slimy, you know, they're, they're betting on businesses to fail. And, and that's bad enough. But the, the reason why that these kids kind of went after them is because that they, not only do they bet on businesses to fail, but then they start putting out trading advice or, you know, the, these, this is a legitimate trading company. So they, they're registered. They can offer advice. They actually sell their advice for big bucks. And so they're slamming GameStop. They're saying, this company's dying. They're going down. And so because they are doing that, is pushing the price down. It's being influenced because people are selling it off. They're hearing in one ear, hey, this company's dying. This company's dying. And then they're looking at it, and they're seeing the price go down. And they're like, oh, yeah, you know what? This guy's right. The company's dying. I'm going to go take out a short position on this, borrow the stock, sell it in the marketplace, and hopefully buy it back at a lower price. So the the kids of Reddit didn't like the fact that this company, who was called um, Melvin Capital, and they're, they're a notorious hedge fund trader. They trade in highly risky um, investments. And a hedge fund basically is just a, it's a way of investing that you take a short position when you need to, you take a long position, but it's all very, very risky. Big money, big, big, big money stuff. And so all these kids, I've seen screenshots from their Robinhood accounts. And it's like they invested maybe $1,000, $5,000, It's now worth $10 million, $15 million, $20 million, And they're just posting it. And, and no one sells. No one has sold anything. Because they all agreed, like, we're all going to hang on to this. We're going to squeeze the hedge fund guys into bankruptcy. Because remember... The higher the stock goes, the more money they have to come up with out of pocket to compensate the owner of the stock that they borrowed it from. So as this week w progressed, everyone was on edge because once, once the hedge fund guys have already bought back the stock to return it to the person they borrowed it from, there's no need for anyone to keep buying the stock. So at that point, everyone expects the price to fall back down to normal. And some people are going to lose all the money because they didn't sell in time. And some people are going to sell right at the right time. And they're going to make tons of money. Well, we, that hasn't happened yet. No one has sold off. And these kids who, who, who are participating in this, they've agreed. Like, I am not selling. And, and I'm telling you, I've seen screenshots of portfolios of $15 million. And they're like, I'm not selling. So they could cash out right now, walk away from this deal with $15 million, and be done. 
But they're like, no, it's a matter of principle. They want to break that hedge fund company so bad, they're willing to sacrifice that amount of profit. To me, that is crazy. <laughs> I made mine and I got out. Um, I actually uh, turned 500% in a week, which is ridiculous. Like that's not even, that's not even a real number. I turned 7,000 into 35,000 in five days. And I mean, that's money should not be that easy. Uh, this is all a bubble. Things are going to pop. Not, not only with this particular stock, but we are right on the edge of the stock market crashing. Um, and I don't know how bad it's going to be, but I think this might be the thing that does it. So going back to the current position, um, as the week went on, the price went up and would fall, went up. And so what was happening was that uh, trades were happening so fast that they were getting rejected. So let's go back to the baseball card scenario. Now let's just say, uh, for a hypothetical purpose, instead of the buyer being able to approach the seller, they have to have an intermediary. They have to they have to tell one guy, "Hey, I want to pay ten bucks," and then he goes, "Okay, done, ten bucks," and then he runs the money over to the seller to hand him the ten bucks. But in the time between the buyer handing the money over to the intermediary guy, the little kid who, who's going to run to deliver the money. And the time the kid gets there to the seller, which just think of it as like being a room. Like you're only allowed to stay on one side of the room. The seller is only allowed to stay on the other side of the room. And you got to pay someone to run the money between the two. So you walk in, you hand the 10 bucks to the kid. The kid runs across the room. And by the time he gets to the seller, the seller's like, no, no, no. The price has gone up to 12. He's like, but I, we just had a deal at 10. And now you're saying 12? And the kid's like, okay, well, what do I do now? And the guy's like, you gotta, you gotta give me two bucks, okay? You gotta make up the difference because you already told the buyer he could buy for ten, but I'm telling you, I'm not selling for twelve. So you gotta go back to the buyer and say, "I'm sorry, your deal is rejected," or you gotta eat the two bucks. So that's what's happening with this company, Robinhood. Trades were happening so fast that from the time that you pushed buy until the time the trade was actually executed the price would change too much. And so Robinhood would just reject the order and say, sorry, your order got rejected. And you wouldn't know until 5, 10, 15 minutes. It would just, your money would disappear and then your money would come back and say, sorry, your order was rejected. And so things got so squirrely. Stuff was moving so fast and so volatile that Robinhood just stopped. They said, no one else can buy any of these stocks. And there was another, another few companies that got on board that, or they got gone after by the Reddit kids uh, I'm not going to go into details about them, but either way, there's four or five companies that were kind of in the same position as GameStop, and so they were people went after them thinking that they could put them in the same position as GameStop. So going back to Robinhood, what they did was they said, no one else is buying this stock. You can only sell it. And that's when everyone lost their mind. Everyone went bananas because you can't do You're protecting the short sellers because... People want to buy. They, they want to buy. And what that's caused, that causes the price to go up. And so if the sellers were to start selling, they could start selling and it would push the price down. But people couldn't get in there to buy because Robinhood said no more buying of the stock. So that's when everyone lost their mind. Like, you can't do that. You can't shut it down. So then Robinhood comes back and they say, okay, you can buy them, but we're only going to limit them to one or two shares per, per person. You can only hold one or two shares. Everyone's still mad. Some people bailed, went to different brokerage houses or whatever. The, the one thing that people don't know or people aren't sure of that Robinhood claims 
that they didn't have the money. See, they have to pay a tiny fee every time a, a trade gets processed to, to the middleman. The little kid that runs it across, he charges like a nickel. And so Robinhood was saying, we don't have enough money to pay for these trades. We, we, haven't, we haven't collected enough money yet. So it's, we're acquiring the, the debt faster than the money's coming in. A lot of people said, no, that's a lie. That's not true. Um, they're just trying to help out their buddies who are hedge fund guys. And apparently, um, Melvin Capital, the short fund, or the, the hedge fund guys, they have what's called flow through from Robinhood, which means they get to see, Melvin Capital gets to see all the trades that go through companies like Robinhood and Webull and all these retail uh, brokerages before it makes it to the market. So they actually have like a, a split second to make a decision to in order to affect the marketplace. So I don't know. There's been lots of speculation about why Robinhood's done that. Um, I don't think it's cool, but I understand that it, it could crash their whole system or or whatever. I mean, I'm sure we all agreed to the terms and conditions, and it probably says in there that Robinhood can restrict trading of any stock at any time. You know, that's part of the deal. And we, being the monkeys that we are, don't even read it. We just push, okay, and then we get mad when, when they do what they said they might do. So we're, we're kind of at a standoff right now. Um, we don't really know what's going to happen. Uh, Melvin Capital came out and they said, hey, we have covered our short position. So remember, that means that they have already bought back the card, returned it to its original owner. And they said, hey, all sh our shorts are covered. We don't know what you guys are doing. We took a 100% loss and we're done. Well, the problem with that is their losses would have been way more than 100%. Because remember, when you're betting on the price going up, your losses can be infinite. Going down, 100% is the most you can lose because you stop at zero. So they're, they're coming out and they're saying, hey, we're covered, dude. We're like, stop, stop running with the price because it's, um, it's not really affecting us. But all the kids on Reddit is saying, you guys are lying. You know, they look at all the data and the analytics, and there's a, there's a report that comes out every 15 days called the Short Interest Report. And that report shows the number of shorted shares that are outstanding. And, and right now, I think it's still, or at one point, it was 140%. So that means that there was 40% more shares were shorted than actual shares that even existed. And so it, it gets kind of squirrely working the math on those, but that's a really, really, really high ratio. So it, that means it would take, based on the average number of, of baseball cards that were traded uh, per show, if every person came to the show to try to buy the card to give back to a lender, if every person's intention was to do that and no one else wanted to, to buy the card to keep for themselves, it would have taken seven baseball card shows to cover all of those stocks that were loaned out, which is a really high amount. So now imagine that it's going to take seven days if every single one is bought to cover, but then you've got people who are running in the baseball card show and they're bidding up the price and then they're just holding on to it. So not only do they drive the price up, but they also pull shares or they pull the baseball cards out of the marketplace. So now there's fewer baseball cards available for people to buy to cover the ones that they borrowed. And so all of this just creates this vicious upward cycle that no one can stop. And naturally, 
The hedge fund guys are saying this is illegal. These guys are colluding. They're making a plan and working together to target us. And the Reddit guys are saying, yeah, how does it feel? How does it feel to get popped in the mouth? And you know what? I'm all for it. I'm all for getting people getting popped in the mouth. These types of things happen because we don't have regulations, and I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. In a free society, these types of things happen, and people will learn from them, and they'll move on. And they will learn that, hey, I better not take out a short position that's too big. I better look at that short interest report and make sure that there's time to cover if the price starts skyrocketing. We don't need a law to tell us we can't do it. We just need someone to get their ass handed to them a time or two. So yeah, so Melbourne Capital has come out and they have said, hey guys, we're covered, but really we don't know. We're not sure if they've really, if he's just saying that and lying because at first when he said that, I thought, okay, that's it. They're done. This is over. The price is going to fall and we all go back to life as usual. The price didn't fall. There could be a couple of reasons for that. It could be because there's some big institutions like, you know, the guys like Prudential and Fidelity and Vanguard. And they're in there tinkering. They're, they're making their money too. They're seeing this price go through the roof and they're jumping on board. You know, they'll make 15, 20% a day. That's huge money to guys like them. And so there's speculation that that can still be pushing the price around or keeping it supported. Or it can be that Melvin Capital has not actually covered, which I think is more likely. I don't think they have covered yet. Um, but when I when I became uncertain is when I jumped out of the market. So whenever whenever Robinhood, I woke up Wednesday morning, and Robinhood was like, uh, "We're no longer letting people buy this," and its price started tanking. So I just jumped out. I was like, "I'm done. I've made my five hundred percent. I don't I don't need to do this anymore." <laughs> it was so stressful. I mean, on my screen time, I, I don't even want to know what it was, but it was non-stop Robin Hood. So this next week is going to be interesting. I kind of expected this whole thing to shake out faster uh, than, than what it looks like it's going to. It looks like I was wrong. Um, there's people saying that, that this could go on for another week or two. There's people saying that the the price could go up to a thousand or three thousand dollars a share. I mean, you know, there's there's companies out there that or there's a company out there that shares $350,000 each. You know, Amazon's 3200 So nothing is off the table at this point. This is all like living in a movie, and we're never going to see anything like it. And I think that's what's been so intriguing to me, is that we, to see technology give power to these kids to topple Wall Street, I, I think it needed to happen. I think it needed to happen, and I think this is probably going to be the pen that pricks the bubble that, that we've all been thinking is just a just a great economy. Everything's just great. Economy's just doing great. Well, it's been inflated. I mean, anyone who's been playing with stocks for the last year has told you that they've made money, probably. If you have not made money playing with stocks, you hadn't been trying that hard because money has been coming easy. And that's typically an indicator of when stuff's about to go bad. When money comes easier than it should, that's when you could say, uh-oh, <laughs> something is not right here. I use another example of this when I graduated college. 2001, I went to work for a couple of home builders. Homes were selling faster than you could imagine. The way that they did the appraisals was ridiculous. 
I was 25, 26 years old when I left to go out on my own. Basically went to the banks and borrowed a million dollars with zero money out of pocket. I had a net worth of nothing. I had student debt. I was not worth anything. But I took my plane to the bank and houses were moving so fast that they were like, okay, here you go. Here's a million dollars. Go build three houses. Get them, Tiger. And so I remember thinking, this is going to have to end. There's no way that money should should come this easy. This was also the same time that that people would um, they could get mortgages based on stated income. They could just go to the bank and say, "Oh yeah, I make four hundred thousand a year," and the bank just has to believe them. This was a policy that Bill Clinton put into place in order to guarantee affordable housing, or affordable mortgages that everyone should be able to own a house. And so he went to the banks and he said, "You guys got to give loans to." to subprime lenders, people that don't have good credit scores. And the banks go, uh, well, we don't loan them money because we're almost certain that they're not going to be able to repay it. And Slick Willie goes, I don't care. You have to loan them money. And so the banks go, we'll do that, but you, federal government, have to back it up. So if you want us to loan them money, we will. But if they default, you got to cover it. And so the government said, okay, that's fine. And so that's what happened. It unwinds. People were borrowing way more than they could afford. People started defaulting on their loans. The banks were in a bind. The federal government ended up bailing out the banks. Now, you hear everyone say, you shouldn't bail out the banks. You shouldn't bail out the banks. Let them fail. Let them fail. Remember, they had a deal with the government. And the government said, if they default, we will cover you. Because otherwise... These people were, were out of their risk assessment threshold. They look at someone's credit score, they look at their income, and they say, no, this guy can't afford a $700,000 house. He can afford a $150,000 house. We'll loan him $150,000, but we're not going to loan him $700,000. But with the ability to walk in and just say, oh, yeah, I make this much, and not verify it, people wanted bigger and better houses. They thought they could afford it, so they would just go in and say they made more money, and it all fell apart. My whole point was that when money comes really easy, something's wrong. And there's going to be a correction. Um, I'm just shooting from the hip here, guys. Like, I don't know. Like, I, I, if there's one thing I've learned from these group of kids on Reddit is that we don't really know much. No matter how much we think we know or we're a savvy investor or whatever. And, and they refer to themselves as retards, which I know is kind of a bad word. But they say, don't listen to us. We're a bunch of retards. Like, we're, we're a bunch of retarded apes. Like, we just... We're here for fun. And it's been it's been so confusing to the older generation who has spent their whole life investing in stocks based on, you know, company expectations and market performance and all these fundamentals. And you've got all these old men who are going, ah, these kids just don't they're not they're not betting on fundamentals. They're not they're just they're just gambling. And the kids are going, Yeah, we know, dude. Like we're well aware that we're just gambling. Shut up and leave us alone. And uh, it's been a it's been a, a fun social observation for me to see the the gap between this, this Gen Z kids and these and the Boomer generation. And there's you know there's a lot of space between them. And th- th- these Gen Z kids like they're they're notorious for just talking crap, right? They just it's like a little locker room talk. You know they're always talking crap to each other, and it's offensive, but it's it's all in good fun. I was reading one post on there and you know, the, their whole thing is like, we're taking it to the moon, GME to the moon. That's like their slogan. 
And so they were all in there kind of ranting and raving, and this guy chimes in. He's like, oh, I've been a stockbroker for 50 years, and what you kids don't understand, <laughs> they, don't even, they don't even try to explain themselves. They just responded, hope you like being poor. <laughs> we'll send you a postcard from the moon, <laughs> which I thought was hilarious. Like, they didn't ask for this guy's input. He just shows up and tries to tell them what they're doing wrong. I don't mind them popping off to him a little bit. I don't know. It's been really fun for me to see this whole thing unravel. I like both sides of it. I like the side of the kids. I like the side of um, the the financial aspect of it. I like the fact that uh, people are pushing back against hedge fund billionaires. You know, the, the recent estimates show that $70 billion has shifted away from these hedge fund guys to these kids. Because remember, money just moves. It doesn't get gained or lost. I also speculate that, that this deep fucking value guy, he might be setting himself up to, to take over the company. or Not take it over, but to take majority shares. I don't know if he can do it or not. Um, last time I saw, he had like $55 million in his portfolio. Uh, 50000 or a good chunk of that was stocks, which he hasn't sold any of. He's... Um, He's got 50,000 shares of stocks, and he's he says he's not selling. So they're all kind of following his lead, and uh, this week's going to be interesting. Uh, there's really no point in getting in now. I've had a lot of people say, hey, should I get in? Should I get in? I feel like the, the most you could probably do is three times your money, but in a highly volatile setting. Now, before I read an article this morning, my speculation was that this thing was going to shoot up like a rocket and then just come down like a rock. Um, that's typically the way that these short squeezes work. But I read an article this morning, it was very like, technical, deep dive, and it was talking about how... He, this was 145 days ago, this guy, this guy wrote the article, and he described everything to the T as it would happen. And it's all been true. It's all happened. And the last thing he says was, in most short squeezes, the price falls back down. In this one, the price is going to stay up. He used Tesla for an example. The, uh, the hedge fund guys tried to go after Tesla and short them. They thought the stock price was overinflated. They thought the stock price was going to come down. It kept going up, going up, going up, going up. Put them in a bind, squeezed them out, and the stock price never came back down. So we'll see what happens. Um... I bought three shares just to lock them up. I'm willing to let them go to zero. I don't care, just to support the cause. So I'm riding with the homies. I took my 500% and I left. Some people will call me a punk or a traitor. Sorry, I'm not in this for GameStop. I'm in this for Brandon Stop. So hopefully that gives you some more insight. Um, I would encourage you to go... Go check out the Reddit subthread called Wall Street Bets. I think there's now like 7 million or 8 million people, which is crazy. I mean, it's crazy. At one point, they all said something like, everyone go over and buy this cryptocurrency. And everyone went over and bought this cryptocurrency. And I saw it happen. And I put a little bit of money in it. And I went and fixed my dinner. And I came back and it was like, double my money in like 30 minutes. <laughs> I was like, what is happening? What is going on? So I'm figuring it out. 
the the apes like to gamble. They really do. And this is this is going to be a drug. Like this is this week has been a drug for me. And I'm not even in it like these guys are. These guys are got millions and millions of dollars on the line. I only had a little bit of that. But still, it's felt like a drug. I, I, if you remember, <laughs> the time that I spent in Nashville playing Bust a Bit, I said, man, I can see how gambling could be addictive or is addictive. And man, I've got the exact same feeling. Partly because this whole thing is nothing that more than a big game of Bust a Bit. We're all just clinging on to a rocket and, and no one wants to be the first one off because they won't make very much money and no one wants to be the last one on because a rocket's going to explode and you lose everything. So it's a matter of deciding when to cash out. And that's all this is. And that's why it's addictive. <laughs> it's addictive for two ways for me. One, because how impressive the whole thing is and my interest in the financial markets. And number two... Because it's gambling. So, I don't know. I'm sure none of you are nearly as interested in this as I am, but I wanted to lay it all out there and break it down as simplistically as possible. On Friday, the Dow, um, which is kind of a, a big indicator of how the stock market is doing, uh, dropped 1.5%, which was a pretty big drop. We're just about three or four days past, I think the high all-time high of the Dow, um, and it fell 1.5 points on Friday. I think that this, uh, what could happen is that a lot of people will get scared of the stock market. There will be a lot of panic selling. Uh, stock prices will crash, and then we're going to see what happens after that. But I would recommend buying... No, I take that back. I can't recommend anything. I'm going to buy some silver. Let's just put it there. If you listen to what I say and you want to buy silver, let me know and I'll tell you how. There's going to be a jump on silver in the next week. Don't listen to me. I'm a retarded ape. I don't know what I'm talking about. So, yeah, I think that's going to be about it. There's going to be movies about this. It's going to be great. Um, it's going to go down in history. I think there's going to be all sorts of new regulations after this, which I highly disagree with. But I think that they're going to slow down the momentum trading. And uh, well, momentum trading is nothing more than just watching a stock, seeing which direction it's heading, and then either betting or not, based on the momentum of that stock. And it's a very, very risky way to invest, but it's worked. The movement of stocks has been so predictable over the last year or two that everybody's made money doing this momentum trading. And uh, I think to prevent this type of disruption from happening, they're going to limit you know, how fast your trades go through. Uh, they're going to limit size of trades based on how the market's moving. And this, this will only be applied to people that are invest, investing from their cell phone. So if you go to a brokerage house or you have a, a stockbroker that, that works for you, or you go through those big institutions like Vanguard and Prudential, the rules aren't going to apply to those guys. They're going to apply to the Robinhood, the E-Trade, the Webull, uh, the low-cost retail investors. They're not really even in investors. Right? We're trading, you know what I'm saying? Like We're sitting there uh, in a circle of people piled around the uh, guy shooting dice, and we're betting on what's going to come up. So fun nonetheless, profitable, 
if you're willing to risk a little bit, but definitely not investing for the future. So that's it. Um, I've done two podcasts with Harry since this whole started. So I'm going to try to figure out how to get those on my thread. Uh, They're currently on his thread on the Eskimo Bros 69 podcast. So once we talk about GameStop pretty much the whole time on both of them. Uh, One of them was from last week. So we kind of had our predictions. And uh, one of the things that's funny was that I think he said like, oh, you'll know if you don't know about GameStop and Wall Street Bets, uh, you'll see the logo on uh, CNBC. And sure enough, like on Wednesday or Thursday, national news outlets picked it up. So I'm hoping the show's only just begun. I would love to see them squeeze those guys out of business. I know that's ruthless, but it's not nearly as ruthless as what those guys have done to a bunch of businesses. So it's time for them to get popped in the mouth. We don't need rules. We just need to let people pop people in the mouth. That's going to conclude my take on the GameStop stop, stock, stop, short sell squeeze. Thanks for listening. Life in Paradise podcast. I'll touch on this a little bit more next week. Maybe a lot more if things blow up. Thanks again for listening. Keep it tranquilo. to be free, I bet you wouldn't